The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of government contracting. Amtower Off Center with your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with a guest who hadn't been here in a long while, and I hope to uh, make him a little more regular, Mark Foreman. Mark has what I consider to be the trifecta in the GovCon market. He's been on the Hill uh, Senate Government Affairs Committee for several years. He was actually a GAO as an analyst, uh, obviously in industry, and the first federal government-wide CIO. Welcome back. Thanks, Mark. Good to have you. So, Good to be uh, back. Good to be back. You know, it's been too long. Uh, so again, you know, solo or bring in with a couple other people, but I, I, I need you back more regularly because you are truly a wealth of knowledge, which is why you're here. So um, let me start off with kind of a generic question, and then we'll take a dive into some uh, a, a little more granular activity. Um, technically, you were a CIO, the CIO, for two and a half years. What are the bigger problems facing that community right now? Well, we're in another time of, of digital transformation. Uh, some of the folks out there may remember, I was a big fan of a, a textbook at that time called Unleashing the Killer App. And I went back and reread that about a year and a half ago because it talked a lot about digital transformation. Now, back then, it was the web era. Now, we're into a whole different era where you got to figure out how to do mobility. We work a lot with uh, CIOs in, in state and local government. And, oh, and I, other... I, let me interrupt a second. Who Who's we? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I didn't yeah. introduce your company. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I, I'm uh, currently uh, and have been at the, for uh, almost three years now at Unisys, running their global public sector. And it's uh, part of the transformation that Unisys has been going under. And, and I think we've been terrifically successful in uh, bringing Unisys in the digital era and then supporting our clients, especially in the public sector, in making that uh, transformation now. Uh, I do find that state and local governments, both here and in Australia, are ahead of the federal government. In uh, here, UK, Australia, uh, other countries, Canada, it just seems that state government is where most of the action is happening now, and we support them. And and that's because of their ability or their uh um they they're the ones that deliver the services right and and I think they're right in the middle now where they're on the in one sense the governors uh premiers they call them in Australia are very sensitive to the needs of the urban areas and and as you may know we're in uh, many parts of the world including the US and in Australia and New Zealand undergoing a rapid movement of uh, urbanization and so, uh, so the governors are in between money coming from the federal government agencies to the local agencies, a lot of political pressure on crime, economic growth, education, and, uh, and of course, coming now out of the, this long recession, very focused on modernization. Uh, so as, as new techniques have come about using the cloud, 
for digitization or the digital economy, uh, the governors are changing their organization structure, much like we've seen from, from the Trump administration and we're seeing in other countries around the world. And that has huge impacts on IT. Okay. So let, let, let's dive into the IT then. Let's talk about the uh, uh, spending and acquisition implications of uh, the new, this administration's uh, reorg uh, proposal. So take that as far as you want. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, we are in this era of digitization. And uh, I, I think one of the things I've seen globally is the shift from governments uh, primarily developing their IT system as electronic paperwork. Virtually all the systems are silos, and they all involve document creation and some workflow. Usually it's to give somebody a, a license or a registration. Sometimes it's for social services or a welfare case. Uh, sometimes it may be for other kinds of documents like passports. Now, not all that's going to go away. But the policy issues that we've been increasingly facing since I was at OMB require cross-agency teaming. And the data that you have to analyze looks across these programs. But the systems don't support that. The systems are document-based. It's really hard to get the data out of those systems. And, uh, and now we're in a different era. So we're moving from this era of documents and workflows to data and algorithms to support the analysis. And that's driving a lot of state level uh, agencies to consolidate in clusters. So you'll have a public safety and justice cluster, or you'll have a social services cluster. And I think we saw that in this reorg now with moving TANF and SNAP together uh, under uh, a social services program. I think we've seen a similar thing with education, workforce, and employment uh, in, in the proposal. Um, there's an understanding now that y- you got to be able to do the analysis and you got to be bringing things together. So the next step, more than moving boxes, is going to be how do we switch from systems that were document-based, because that was the way we did workflows in government, mm-hmm. regulatory compliance and so forth, to the data and gathering that data that we need to do the policy analysis. There's, there's uh, one specific initiative that is in there that, that really caught my the Economic Statistics Initiative. Uh, when uh, I was at OMB, some people may remember, we started the line of business initiatives around six areas. One of those was statistical agencies. There had been a move in the 80s, a move in the 90s, and uh, a move when I was at OMB to consolidate statistical agencies. You had some agencies claiming that they were getting different statistics because they would collect the data from a company at the beginning of the month versus the middle of the month, versus the end of the month. Companies, highly computerized now, they didn't care. They're just one set of data that they had. So they would fill in the form whenever it was due. But it was kind of a non sequitur to think that you were really getting different data. So I see recognition of that. Well, let's move that forward now. Uh, There was uh, uh, a project called the Billion Prices Project uh, several years ago at MIT. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars in economic statistics. These professors were using a a server in a closet to mine data off the Internet and get real-time pricing data. They could analyze shocks that were happening because of a a weather event anywhere in the world because 
Most companies produce their prices on the internet. Your grocery store prices are all on the internet. Amazon is a wealth of information on prices. And so these kind of old methods where we used to send people out and they'd buy something and they'd bring the receipts back and key them in, that's too expensive and it's too slow. So I'm hopeful now that with this merger of these statistical agencies, we actually will come into the digital economy on how you collect that data, but consider the implications on that for all the IT that those those agencies had been buying. This is going to be a dramatically different spend model for IT on anything that was essentially e-paperwork in the past. Zowie. (laughs) Uh, I'm assuming you're kind of excited about that because basically you're a numbers guy anyway. I mean, that's where you started, right? My background is operations research and and, uh, analysis. Uh, I think one of the other fascinating elements in this report is the focus on evidence-based decision-making. In uh, the When I was on the Hill, uh, Senator Roth sponsored the Government Performance and Results Act. And in the Bush administration, that got modified under the what people call the Results Act. And in the Obama administration, the whole evidence-based decision-making came to the forefront. Now, again, you have this problem that most of the data is locked up in these, these document workflow-type systems. So it's really hard to do evidence-based decision-making. But I think it's widely accepted now that to make the government do a better job at making decisions, we need to have clear ways to understand what policies work and what don't, how do you organize to implement those policies, and uh, the ability for things like machine learning to get real-time insights back and adjust those policies or those operations. We just don't have the systems to do that. And I expect that that's where we'll see a big growth in funding and spending. Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I shall return with Mr. Foreman right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here. Uh, I should have done this at the beginning of the show, so I'll do it now. I'm here with Mark Foreman, Vice President and Global Head of the Public Sector for Unisys. Very briefly explain the purview of your realm, if you will. I'm responsible for all of our public sector work and growing the business, making sure we're developing the unique value propositions for our clients all around the world. Uh, Government, a lot of higher education clients, uh, but not the U.S. federal. U.S. federal with Unisys is is managed as a full encapsulated business unit. Okay. So, but that means you get to go everywhere and see what's working and what's not working and bring it back and then go back and help them do it better. That's right. You get tremendous uh, view. This is my third global role in a company, and uh, the ability to go and talk to clients in London and compare what they're doing with somebody, for example, in the European agencies, uh, with uh, somebody here in Washington or in Ottawa, Canada, uh, in Canberra with Australia, you see where people are making successes and where they're hitting up against constraints and the ability to share information and help them work through those constraints is, is what makes a global public sector business successful. Okay. Let's, let's go back to our conversation from the, uh, the first segment though, and talk about um, what's new uh, versus what's been done before. 
There are a number of things in the report that uh, it seems every, every time we uh, have a, a change in government to a, uh, a conservative uh, government, we try to do the same things. And uh, my background, in addition to operations research, is heavily economics-oriented. My graduate degree is from Chicago. My undergrad was in economics. Uh, so I, I really uh, appreciate the libertarian approach. Um, I don't think that anybody has figured out successfully how to divest the U.S. government of the air traffic control system, and, uh, and that's been tried many times. And so, uh, so there, there are, are some of these repeat, uh, let's let the free market determine, and it just doesn't seem to fit in the DNA of the uh, U.S. economy and political system. And normally would say, well, things like this may be possible, but I don't see anything that's happened in the digital economy that would force that change. So there, there are a few things like that that have occurred. Um, the, the job programs integration uh, certainly dates back to a major push in the, by uh, the Clinton administration. And I think we tried to follow that up in the Bush administration as well. Uh, um, to me, what underlies this is the very siloed nature of budgeting and programs. Uh, we've looked at this a lot. I've certainly looked at this a lot in my career. And it seems that when programs per, uh, perform poorly, there's a constituency that rises up and goes to their member of Congress and asks for that program to be fixed. And uh, for whatever reason, it's very hard to do that. And so the member of Congress generally takes the committee they're sitting on and creates a new program. And the longer a program that lasts, regardless of whether the performance is poor or not, the harder it is to change it. And the more you get this, these redundant or overlapping problems, to solve the problems that were never fixed in the old programs. That's what's in this report. And it, it just seems like even though we've fixed some of these before, the problems rise up again. And, uh, and I think you see that in the job training programs. Um, the, uh, the movement, though, from uh, SNAP and TANF, I think is a new movement to pull those programs together and it's a recognition, really, the way states are delivering those programs now and local governments are delivering those to citizens. But it's also a recognition of the change in the economy. Um, my uh, history lessons tell me that the food stamp program originally was created in large part to help farmers and to uh, ensure that there was enough demand for a growing supply of farm goods. Uh, so to make sure that the, the people who needed it had a way to buy the agriculture goods and that would support the prices and farmers. Uh, we're beyond that now. And now it is truly a, a safety net type program. So integrating that together is a, a really good thing. Um, welfare to work and creating initiatives to s allow states to come up with models is a good thing, I, I believe, but also very controversial. It's been tried going back to the uh, Clinton administration probably before that. What made that work in the Clinton administration was an alignment between uh, the Republicans, conservative Republicans in the House and Senate, and the Clinton administration, who was a conservative Democrat. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things that we should look for in some of these. Where is the alignment between the White House and the powers that be in the Congress, and there, that's where you'll see these program changes really take hold.
Yeah, the, 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 the problem with that whole scenario, though, is that once a new president comes in, um, you know, witness Mr. Trump to Mr. Obama, uh, you know, Trump wants to undo everything Obama did, uh, you know. Not everything. Well, that, uh, he, but he said. You let know, me give you just, two examples, Mark. Um, the 18F organization, right. which many of us were concerned about because she was. That's what the the contractor community should be responsible and held accountable for br- bringing that innovation to the government. So 18F became TTS, and uh, that has been embraced in this plan. Okay. Okay. The funding for, for 18F and TTS was done by taking away funding from something that, that we created as one of the eGov initiatives, the Office of Citizen Services at, at GSA. Now, we created the Office of Citizen Services because as you look across the government, there's no single voice of the customer. Nobody really represents what the citizen needs. So if you want to create an improved citizen experience, you have to understand how the federal government delivers some services directly and some working with state and local governments. And you need to look across the departments because most citizens don't care that it's the agriculture department versus HHS where they get their food stamps from. If they're needy, they just need that safety net. Right. And, and so you have to have somewhere in the government that represents the voice of the customer, the voice of the Coordinating the activities. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the Obama administration took away that money and said, we're going to give it to TTS. And the irony for me is you took away money that was supposed to go to provide the voice of the customer to invest in digital initiatives. Who's providing the voice of the customer? And so this plan restores that voice of the customer as well as endorsing the TTS. It's a mix. It brings back something the Obama folks got rid of and endorses something the Obama folks created. Okay. Um, let's migrate. Um, oh, there's, there was one other thing here. Um, or did you just cover this? The, the implications of moving government into the digital era. Um, well, the, the biggest implication for me on this is digitization and the digital economy. You know, it, it would be good to have a study or good for OMB to do an analysis of how many of the systems that are in that roughly $100 billion federal IT budget are actually systems that don't support the work that we need or the services that we need in this new digital economy. Buried in this this report, I think, is is going to be a lot of changes that would fit really well under the Paperwork Reduction Act. And I think in the digital economy, there are two sides of it. One is, let's get rid of these old systems, not because they're old, but because they support these document-based workflows that don't really solve any of the problems in the economy that we're facing now. And let's invest in the systems that we need for the data and analysis and the evidence-based decision-making and so forth that the, the policymakers, all the way down to the operations people, need. Uh, I've done um, work literally getting out in the field and talking to people in the regions, government workers in the regions. And I'll never forget the, the, the story. The headquarters agency said, we cannot disrupt these, these systems because the field won't be able to do the work. And the field workers said, will you please give us some systems that help us do our work? 
<laughs> and, and I think that's one of the other disconnects, that we tend to develop these systems <clears throat> with a very Washington focus, because this is where the people in the headquarters and the power lie. <clears throat> and we need to get more out into the regions and understand what do we really need to support the state and local government and the citizens where the work is actually being done. Okay. Um, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I shall return with Mr. Foreman right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm here today with uh, Mark Foreman, uh, who is the vice president and global head of Unisys Public Sector. That is all public sector except federal. So, um, um, FATARA, accountability, um, this is an area that, that kind of uh, y- you have some opinions about. Sure. Well, having worked on the Clinger Cone Act and, um, and the EOV Act, um, there have been a number of, of governance models pushed throughout uh, time for how governments should manage IT. And uh, the fascinating item, I think, in FATARA is how we expect debates to be done on uh, deciding what modernization initiatives an agency should undertake and how those should be managed. Inevitably, in the the government, I've seen, uh, whether it was the Defense Department, Health and Human Services, in fact, you go to almost any country, the political desire to get the result out of an IT project overwhelms the reality of whether you can deliver on that promise. And so projects often take on a life of their own. We used to talk about uh, the, uh, the airplane advertisement model where a secretary or an undersecretary would see something in an airplane magazine, they'd come back, and they'd <laughs> want to buy that technology. And it had to be just from that vendor. And, of course, when we were doing all the, the commercial items discussions back in the 90s, this was fairly common. GAO used to call this buying technology for technology's sake. And uh, it's very compelling when you're an agency head and you see problems in your agency and you read an article or you see an advertisement how other people have, have fixed that and you want to get that fixed too and you want it fast and you believe the article you've seen because that's a proof point. And we in industry know really well how to market our proof points. Right. So it's my job. Yeah, that's right. So so it's a it's compelling. And uh and we created a business case process and discipline that went along with that, which has waned and, and moved forward over the years. Um it's it's in most countries now in government, you have to have a business case to move forward with an IT initiative. But what happens when that starts to go south? And what's the role of the CIO to bring in best practices versus the agency head that doesn't want help from the CIO? This has been the ongoing issue. Um, In FATARA, I think um, there are a number of good elements uh, about it. Um, One of the most controversial, I think difficult ones, is it basically sets up a conflict between the program office leader that owns the money and the CIO that knows the right way to apply IT. And it boosts that decision up to the secretary, who may not know anything, and generally puts the CIO in a position where the head of the agency has to have a very good relationship and trust in that CIO because it's really hard 
to turn down your policy area leader. So uh, how are we coming along with that? Well, I think um, Tony Scott and the folks at OMB did a tremendous job at putting out a baseline document that said every agency has to understand where are you starting now? Are you viewing your CIO as a tech geek? Because a tech geek cannot take on a program director. Or are you viewing your CIO as a source of innovation and transformation? Now, this has been a pendulum through the years, as we know. But we're in an era now where the CIO has to be in charge of digital transformation. And by the same token, what we see in state governments uh, here and in other countries if that CIO cannot drive that transformation, if they maintain the swim lane of tech geek, they're out of a job. And governors are firing CIOs for not driving transformation. I'm not sure that we're seeing that level of implementation in Fatara. But there, this is two sides of a coin. If we want the CIOs really to drive the transformation and ensure accountability for IT transformation projects, we have to empower them and then give them the backing to drive that transformation. We've got to figure out this conflict between the program area that holds holds the money and the CIOs that ideally are the transformation agent, and I don't think we've gotten there yet. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's take that, that transformational aspect and, and look, look at one of the probably the universal realities, and that's legacy systems. So... Um, how much of the money in IT goes towards maintaining legacy? Well, operations maintenance, 75%. You know, how much of that is legacy versus new? At this point, since we're, we're clearly at the end of the, the three-tier web applications era, is, you're probably right. It's 75%, and you could call that O&M all legacy. Yeah. Maybe it's 70%, but it's pretty Well, close. even if it's down to 60, it's a lot of money. It's most of the money. Yeah. Yes, that's so, right. But, but, you know, and then we have this, this whole IT modernization thing that is the responsibility of the CIOs, and where are they going to get the, the funds and the talent? And part of that brings, you know, something – that I didn't plan on asking you about, but I will. Where does all the IT training come in to implement all of this stuff and maintain all of this stuff? Ah, yeah. There's. Uh, I know there are some folks out there, and my son falls in this category. You can go to six month boot camp now and come out the other end being a guru in several languages, and the languages and the insights in uh, among IT developers change so quickly that uh, you literally probably could do a boot camp and every two or three years maybe need to do a boot camp to keep up. On the other side of this, with the cloud computing and uh, digitization, uh, in the UK they call it serverless computing. Here we call it cloud native. Uh, other people call it low code or no code applications. Um, the era of actually coding applications as the predominant way to do modernization is rapidly going by the wayside. You know, we talked a lot about shared services in the Bush administration, and then eventually the Obama administration re-embraced that. Um, the, the movement to shared services is a movement to economy of scale. And we know now that there are common IT services Sometimes there'll be web services, sometimes there'll be microservices. 
And there's a race going on to develop these common services and make it easy to, to acquire and integrate with them between the major cloud providers. So this next wave is going to be less about uh, how you actually code an application and much more about how you migrate your existing applications into what people call workloads and where do you put those workloads given that a workload will consume multiple services from a cloud provider. may even include, include a mix of services that you're running out of your IT shared services center and out of the cloud. We see a lot of move this movement in this state government, and they're doing it by these policy clusters that I mentioned before, because at the end of the day, for them, it's about data and analytics in this next wave. So, uh, so I think that, um, that there are two parts of the puzzle here. One is how do you deal with these very high volume legacy systems that were almost running on their own? Yeah, you needed to maintain patches, you need to ensure security, but most of the real high volume legacy systems in government are very secure and very reliable. Problem is they're doing workflows and business processes that we may not need anymore. And I, I know a lot of the movement in modernization has been to just recode, refactor these applications. I'm not sure that's a valuable use of money. So who, who's, is, is there anyone making the determination as to whether or not they're uh, rebuilding something that's obsolete? In, in uh, this movement to the IT as a service model, uh -oh. again, we, we see state governments as being the leader in this. Okay. And there's uh, basically what we found is a, a little bit different than the way we used to do it. Used to be that we would refactor or change the applications and then transition them in the new environment. The new way of doing things is transition it to the cloud or a hybrid cloud environment and then start looking at where are the common IT services these are common IT services like search or reset your password, uh, identity and access controls. And then the next phase is really to get into the applications and see where the applications using common IT services or what Amazon and others would call microservices. And so uh, this is going to take a few years, but the, the examples are coming every day of where states are finding that they can save money and deploy faster. Um, we, we have an experience in a, a large northeastern state, and I can't say the state's name, okay. but they, they invested about $20 million. Uh, they got back $100 million, uh, so they netted 80 or four times their investment. Um, they deployed this, this what uh, people call four-tier services-based architecture in uh, a kind of a cloud computing model. And they were deploying applications much faster. CIOs at the states are viewing this as a way for them to do their customer relationship management with the tenant agencies because now they have a value proposition. They're giving them faster deployment of new applications and business processes. They're cutting their costs. They're providing security that they didn't have before. But it takes this transition and then two-step transformation to make that work. Okay, but but do the the governments that you're talking about have like the FedRAMP certification process as as a you know an interim step between the service and the implementation? 
they are piggybacking off of the, the federal level, be it here, Australia, or other countries. Okay. They're piggybacking off of the similar FedRAMP approaches that these countries have. I think that's um, been one of the best catalysts. Now, I know there are a lot of concerns with the FedRAMP program, uh, but having that certified as a, a secure environment allows a lot of state governments to move faster into the secure environment and get the controls that they couldn't afford to put in in their legacy environments. It just seems to take companies a long time to get through the process. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to see the administration embrace approaches to streamline that and to modernize that. FedRAMP was 10 years old now? I guess, yeah, it's, it's getting there. Yeah, so uh, maybe not quite 10, maybe it's, it's uh, seven about or eight, 7 anyway. or 8, yeah. yeah. So technology turns at two or three years. It's time for a relook. Okay. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, uh, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. We shall return in a couple of minutes. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm here with uh, old friend, uh, the first government-wide CIO under the second Mr. Bush, uh, that was uh, 01 to 03, 04, you were CIO, right? 01 to 03, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, fun days. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, literally virgin territory. So you you got to set it up, and then Karen came in and, you know, hung the curtains or whatever. Did a great job. Uh, she did. Soon yeah. to be and back she's, at she's, Energy in another she, perfect slot she's, for her. She's back, yeah. yeah. Uh, can't keep her down. So uh, a couple other issues I want to touch on with you while while I have you here, uh, IoT and mobility. I know you're uh, uh, this the, everything we're talking about computer wise uh, is mobile, right? You know, my phone has more power than the first uh, NASA uh, launch thing did. <laughs> That's right. You know, we we do uh, a number of citizen and public surveys to understand what our clients, who are basically government agencies, need to do so we understand our clients' customers. And one of the areas that we'll continue to do work on is what we call safe cities. Um, Cities are spending a tremendous amount of money on IoT devices, part of smart cities. Very little to show, we think. I mean, there are examples of improved traffic flows and um, trash truck management, but in terms of real ROI for the citizens, we found that that safe cities, they want uh, the ability to improve quality of life and uh, for the government to understand their needs better and, and provide for that. And so a lot of that is how they take that data and integrate it to improve the quality of citizen services. And obviously, public safety deal with crime is, is a big part of that. Uh, you're right about the greatest IoT device is a smartphone. And I, I, I don't know... How many people realize, but it came through very clearly in our survey, part of this mass urbanization movement is uh, people want to interface with their law enforcement and public safety agencies in a different way. We had Neighborhood Watch for years, and uh, the concept was that you had a group of people, they walk around the neighborhood, they see something, they have a contact on the police to call. Citizens today want a digital version of that. Uh, in your window, somebody's breaking into cars in your street. You can literally stream that to law enforcement. Don't have to wait for somebody to answer the phone. 
and they'll do it even if law enforcement isn't ready and few law enforcement organizations are ready. But we've seen some, like in the UK, where uh, we provide the uh, major crime investigation system called HOMES used by all the police forces in the UK. And uh, we put up what we call the, the public portal. So after an event, a portal's immediately available. Citizens put in, could be streaming video, could be uh, other information that they've got. Generally, it will be video or pictures. And they fill out a form that essentially is the metadata that goes with what they've put in. And many of the police chiefs are saying this is going to revolutionize solving major crimes. So uh, you, you can coordinate that or, or uh, integrate that with CCTV that, uh, that are in, in a lot of cities, and it has tremendous, tremendous opportunity. But you've got to secure that. So it's got a whole bunch of different challenges now. Uh, citizens are concerned about their privacy. They want to make sure if they're submitting something that the cybersecurity systems of the city or of the government are good enough to protect the criminal from finding out who submitted that information and potentially doing something uh, to the person submitting the information. Challenges are new in this environment. Now let's talk about this at the federal government level. Um, uh, It took me a while to realize, as I assume most people, how much IoT devices are outside the military. I think we all recognize that that's been in the military for well over a decade, targeting systems and listening systems and so forth. Those are what we would now call IoT devices. But license plate readers at all the border crossings, um, the uh, facial recognition wherever you come into the border at Dulles Airport or JFK, um, the uh, the federal police officers and some of the systems that they may use, um, even things that would feed into uh, earthquake systems or IoT devices, the control systems used by Bureau of Land Reclamation and uh, Bureau of Land Management. Um, these These are pretty pervasive throughout the federal government. And there are two times, types, the passive ones that collect the data. So back to my theory that as we're moving in this consolidation to figure out how we solve policy problems better, we're going to need to figure out what are the IoT devices that the federal agencies have access to and how do they integ- integrate that listening into the policy analysis and operations. Again, this is going to generate a whole bunch of new system spies. And then on the other side, there's the the active sensors, which allow the data to come back and then somebody in the government to take an action or to automate that action and integrate machine learning. Uh, In the uh, Australia, those of you who have been to Australia know that they've had the e-gates for many years. And I believe that they'll continue to be a leader in the use of IoT devices take the data coming back from that iris reader or, or whatever sensor, it could be a mixture of fingerprint and facial recognition, that all has to go back and be evaluated in, in milliseconds and then returned in milliseconds. Because you basically have two to three seconds to decide, do I stop this person and route them to, to an interdiction, or do I let the person go through? And everybody wants commerce to flow across borders, uh, um, they want uh, people to be able to move in and out of countries and focus in on that, that needle in the haystack that is the wrong guy, the wrong person they need to interdict. 
So, uh, so I think that this explosion is uh, both in the data collection and in how we interface with citizens in uh, active ways using these IoT devices, and it's going to spur a lot of new investment by the government. Okay. Well, you know, there's there's chips in virtually everything now, so uh, the the ability to track, you know, use your phone to figure out what you need to buy because your refrigerator can tell you. Right. Um, and how we secure that is really uh, important. But, uh, you know, similarly, a lot of people have uh, home alarm systems now that are interconnected and uh, could alert the fire department very rapidly or the police department very rapidly. And we've had that for several years. You know, one thing I would say about this, I don't know how much it will relate to the federal government. But our Safe City survey clearly indicated that citizens want a dialogue with government officials about how these devices are being used, how the data is being used, how they can use their, their IoT device, their smartphone, for example, to interface. Even how, uh, for things like fire alarms, if, um, uh, if the uh, stove catches on fire and alerts your fire alarm system, how how are police and emergency response going to deal with these IoT devices? Citizens want a dialogue. That's uh, you know once again the legacy system versus the, the new. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So we got what we got. Um, I want to wrap up with going back to the first question, if I may. How how does all this impact uh, the CIO at any level of government and you know, it boggles my mind how they they keep all of these things uh, in, in in some sort of priority. Right. One thing I learned when I was at, at OMB and we were doing the president's management agenda under President Bush, um, and I saw this when I was on the Hill as well, every department has fundamentally two or three major issues that dominate their agenda and dominate their budget. And their problems are generally chronic, and, and they've been trying to solve for years. They've made some inroads, but they're still binding constraints on the, the performance of that agency. I think that's where CIOs really need to focus on. How will the digital economy or digitization help solve those two or three constraining issues? And the second thing I would say in that regard, once CIOs have figured that out, they need to get out in the field. They need to really talk to the people in those regional agencies and understand how do they deal with those issues because they're grappling with it, and they figured out workarounds. And some of those workarounds are because the systems that we in Washington may think work don't, and the field just fills them out to make it look like they're compliant, but they, they have workarounds, and I think we need to understand those. And the second is where the people are just dying under the weight of things like reconciliation burdens in the financial field and government. So get out to the field, uh, see what the issues are, and figure out how to then uh, leverage the ideas, these emerging technologies, these low-code or no-code models to solve those chronic problems. Cool. Mr. Foreman, always a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. It's been too well, long. Glad to be here. Mark Foreman, Vice President, Global Head of Unisys Public Sector. Uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects 
of marketing to the government and leveraging LinkedIn. If you want to chat, give me a shout. Uh, drop me a line at mark at federaldirect.net. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Amtower Off Center, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.